Welcome to Dispatch In Depth, where we give you the stories behind the science of emergency dispatch. This is an official podcast of the International Academies of Emergency Dispatch, the world's leading authority in dispatch science. I'm your host, Becca Barris, writer and copy editor for the Journal of Emergency Dispatch. In each episode, we'll be bringing you stories of the fascinating people who work in this area. We'll give you their backstory, including how they got there, what they're working on, and what drew them to the field. These are people who represent the cutting edge in emergency dispatch, and I hope you'll join us to hear more about them. Welcome to Dispatch in Depth. Today, we're talking about the top stressors for emergency dispatchers. Here to share her wealth of knowledge is Dr. Violet Rimshaw with Innovative Writing. While serving as a dispatcher herself, Violet decided to earn a doctorate degree so she could focus on assisting the different branches of first response. Her goal was to increase understanding of the distinct needs of 911 dispatchers for wellness, both on and off-site. Welcome, Violet. Thank you. It's good to be here. It's good to have you on the podcast. This is a topic that is very near and dear to many hearts. So I look forward to hearing your findings and what actions people can take. So before we get started, could you please give us a quick rundown of your career path? How did you come to where you are now? Sure. Well, believe it or not, I actually started as a special education teacher. I got my undergrad in psychology, and there's not a whole lot you can do with a bachelor's in psych, so I I ended up moving towards special ed. And I liked being a teacher, but I was always curious about 911. So I went to get some training for emergency dispatch, and then at the time, my daughter was only four years old, and unfortunately, I got a divorce. So at that time, I could not leave her alone for overnights and things. But I thought about it for 10 years, and then when she was old enough, I went back to it, and I was a dispatcher for about five years. And I only left because I was earning my doctorate, and it was just intense to do both at the same time. Yeah, it's already a very intense job. I can't even imagine doing, you know, doctorate level work on top of that. That's amazing what you did. Thank you. So you said that you've worked as an emergency dispatcher. What was there something that Mm -hmm. spurred you into research specifically? Yes, I am very interested in how workplaces could improve and especially for psychological well-being. And having been a dispatcher, I saw a lot of things that I was constantly thinking, gosh, if this was done a different way, it would help a lot. So when it came to my doctoral research, I decided to start looking around and see what kind of research was out there. And there's very little about emergency dispatchers at all. And if it is there, it's a very small number of people that they asked or they lump it all together with police and fire. So I decided that I was going to do my research and ask them what their top five stressors were in five different areas, which was call taking, radio, interactions with coworkers, interactions with management, and work-life balance. But then, because I noticed that none of the research before had asked this, I asked them for their ideas for fixing things in each of those areas. And they gave me some really excellent answers. Yeah, I can imagine the people who are not living in the dispatch centers, but essentially living in the dispatch centers, right? They're there day in and day out. I'm sure they had lots of great ideas. 
Oh, absolutely. And fortunately, dispatchers do like to talk. So they gave me more than one idea on each question, and it was fabulous. <laughs> That's awesome. So let me back up a little bit. How did you get these answers? Was it a survey that you sent out? Yes, I sent out a survey request to every person who supervised a, P a PSAP in the state of California. So up and down, rural, urban, everywhere. And I got a total of 200 responses and I ended up being able to use 142 because since I was in school, they had to have answered every single question. Right. 142 is really a lot bigger number than most dispatch studies. It's usually you see like less than 30. And so 142 gave me a broad range of responses from different areas. And I really had a lot to compare and contrast. Yeah. And I imagine there were responses from, like you said, the rural areas versus the urban areas because California is very diverse in that way. Yeah. But it's amazing the commonalities that occurred, regardless of what type of dispatch center it was. <laughs> yeah. Why don't we go ahead and talk about the commonalities? What were some universal themes that you found? So for a call type, I was curious to see if it was a particular type of call that people answer that stresses them out the most. And the same thing for radio traffic is there like a type of situation. But instead, for calls, it was two different categories that came up again and again. One was anything where somebody was actively suffering on the phone or something had just happened where somebody had been suffering. And the second was any kind of call with a barrier to being able to get somebody help. So whether they were lost or didn't speak English or they were a kid or they just couldn't talk while they were on the phone, that did something critical to the dispatcher's sense of their self in the job role every time that happened. Because that's our, our job, right, is to, to help people get out of these situations and to help our responders get to them. And if we can't do that, we kind of feel like we're failing in that moment. Yeah, I, that makes perfect sense based on the interactions I've had with emergency dispatchers, that feeling of helplessness, right? Because a lot of them get into the job to help people. And if you can't do that, what are you doing, you know? Yeah, exactly. So it's not just something extremely traumatic that affects the dispatcher day by day. It's the kind of like the inner keeping a record of how much I was able to do versus how much I was not. Right. That makes sense. Were there any other common themes? For radio, I found that this may not be as much as of a surprise, but one type of call that was commonly stressful for everybody was anytime a first responder was in any type of peril, mm. you know, whether they were just panicking or whether they were actually in danger, because all you can do is sit there and hope that they get out of it, you know, and listen and make sure that there's nothing you can be doing. But that's hard. Again, that's kind of a barrier, right? And the second radio type that was really hard was anything that involved a lot of complex issues, like having to contact another area and, you know, bring in other services. And this came up for the agencies that didn't have a whole lot of support. Like maybe they were the only person doing it or they didn't have a partner or management wasn't checking on them to make sure they're OK. So they're in the weeds all the time. Right. That makes sense. I can imagine that applying in a situation like a wildfire, right, where you're just this little center mm -hmm. and you need more engines and you need more trucks than you currently have. And just trying to coordinate that is, sounds very stressful. 
It is, especially if you're also still having to watch over other responders at the same time on totally different incidents. So, so it can be a lot if the center is not set up in such a way that's going to offer them support. And imagine you're doing that every day and it could happen any time over and over. I'm curious about what you found in relation to things that are stressing dispatchers from the coworker angle or the management angle. Were there any emerging themes there? Oh, yeah. So for coworkers, there were two themes. One would be like an active lack of teamwork and one would be a passive lack of teamwork. And so active would be like somebody stirring the pot and gossiping about people in between calls and, you know, talking behind their back about how they felt they handled a call. And the job's hard enough, but when there are people that are creating that kind of an atmosphere, it makes it worse. And a lot of the time this wasn't being corrected or even observed. And the other would be passive lack of support where nobody's listening to see, oh, that person on the call really seems to need a lot right now. Maybe I should check and see if there's anything I can be doing. Or maybe is he or she okay with how to handle that call? Like, is it triggering them in any way? That just wasn't going on. There was just no teamwork. and. Management had a lot to do with that. So that kind of leads to the the management issues. There were two types of giant issues. One was apprehension. Like you're not comfortable going to your management if you have a problem because you think that you're going to be judged as not good at your job or that you should have known it already. And even when it's time for like a routine talk with your supervisor, you never see them any other time. So your immediate thought is, oh, I must be in trouble. That's not a good atmosphere to work in every day. And the other would be a disconnect. Like they may not have been in the trenches for a really long time, so they're out of touch, or maybe they never were. Maybe they are some type of other responder. They used to be a field responder, now they're in supervision and they're supervising you. And their first priority is their men and women in the field, not you. Yeah, it sounds like there would be a real disconnect there, right? Where you have the manager, the supervisor coming in with one goal and then you coming in with another goal and just never seeing eye to eye. And especially when there are lives at stake. Right. And there was no opportunity in a lot of these cases for anybody to give their own ideas about how to change things. The changes were just given to them, whether they would really work or not. That's always fun when someone's like, oh, here's a problem and here's a solution. You're like, well, A, that wasn't a problem. B, that wasn't the problem I wanted you to fix. And C, the solution doesn't work. Yeah, exactly. When you think about how tough the job is outside of all this, and then you have all these factors that are not addressed, which could be addressed and could really help to make a better work atmosphere, Without changing all that stuff, you have this recipe for disaster and turnover and calling sick, you know, it changes the whole culture. Yeah. It sounds like a lot of issues are born out of agency culture, right? And staffing and retention is something that emergency dispatch has been dealing with for a really long time. And this is part of it, right? It's already a really hard job. And if you don't have that culture of support and nurturing and understanding, it's a losing game. Absolutely. And then it spills over into your life. (laughs) No, it does. It does spill into other aspects of their life. So 
Let's talk solutions. We've we've talked about a lot of things that I'm sure dispatchers already know. What actionable things can they do? Well, I found that a lot of people came up with similar ideas to start on-site, not just off-site stuff, not even including people interactions, but physical, tangible things that you can change on-site, like having a room that's quiet, where after you have a really rough call, you can go there, nobody's going to be chit-chatting, and it's maybe got dim lights and maybe soft music, and you can just at least decompress. Because really, the culture is pick up another call, stuff it down, you'll deal with it later, you don't have time for this. And especially with staff shortages, right? It might have not even been your day to work in the first place, so you're already exhausted and you're coming into work answering these tough calls and there's nowhere for you to go. So if there could just be a quiet room on site, then that would change a lot of things. Another idea was to have either an on-site gym or a walking path built outside because a lot of times dispatchers are told that they're not able to go somewhere for lunch. They have to stay on site for their lunch break. So you got to have a change of scenery and physical exercise helps you to decompress from all the adrenaline. So I thought that was really cool. And then we did get some requests for an on-site canine, you know, for therapy purposes. And another huge thing, which I think makes so much sense, is some type of child care for first responders. It doesn't have to be on the particular call taking site, but that maybe a county would have one or two places where all police, fire, medical dispatchers can take a kid. Because when you're a single parent and you're called in at the last minute, or even on your regular night shift schedule, that's a nightmare to depend on people all the time. And you don't want to just trust them to anybody in the middle of the night. So can you imagine if we took some funding and put it there, you'd probably have a lot more people stay in their job role. Yeah, absolutely. And you know about this firsthand. There are a lot of researchers who come toward this topic in kind of a theoretical way, but you have lived it. You've been the single mom and you know how hard it is to get good childcare. Yeah, And even if your kid's there on day shift, you know what? You're having a family moment during lunch if you want to stop in and see them a minute. And that that changes everything. I think that emergency responders, in particularly dispatchers, have this need to feel like their management cares about them as a person and cares that they have a life outside of that desk. Yes. Yeah. That's what we're missing. Exactly. That idea that an emergency dispatcher is a whole person, right? It's... Interesting because a lot of people, when they start using the protocols, when they start using any kind of script for 911 calls, they think, Mm -hmm. oh, you just want me to be a robot. But they're not robots and they have a lot of needs outside of their work that they need to have addressed in order for Mm -hmm. them to come to work and put everything in it. And again, keep those people out on the front lines safe. One participant even said, listen, I would be a much nicer person when I went home to my wife after a 12-hour tough shift if I could just work out at an on-site gym first and then drive home. Well, that makes sense. And once you build it, it's there, right? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Or even I liked what you said about the walking path, right? Because it's outside. You're going to 
be in a different headspace. You're going to kind of clear things out and then you're going to go back in and be in dispatch mode. I've talked to a couple people mm-hmm. about this topic and they said it's really good to have rituals between home and work and then work and home again to kind of have a time that tells your brain, hey, we're not a dispatcher anymore. You can chill out on the hypervigilance. You can yeah. be a whole person. Yeah. And that said, I think that we really need to do something about mandatory overtime. And there's a huge amount of centers that told me that when they've had vacation scheduled, they're canceled. When they've had days off to go to a wedding or a family birthday, they're canceled. Oh, we're short. You have to come in. Or you're already there, but the person didn't show up. So you have to stay later. And that's very disrespectful. I mean, I understand you've got to fill that seat, but that tells me that we need to come up with a different system of filling the seat. Yeah. Because what good is that body in the seat if they're so mentally and physically exhausted that they're not paying attention to details? You nailed it. You absolutely nailed it. It's no good to anybody, right? It's damaging to the person who's going to burn out and feel like a failure, right? When they can't do this job that's really important to the community, And then you have a dispatch center that's like, oh, well, another person washed out. But it's (laughs) it's preventable just because it's all not always been like this. But it's been like this for a really long time that people feel like we're stuck. This is how it is. But Violet, you're here to say it doesn't have to be like that. No. And these changes, yes, initially they they do take some money and some planning, but in the long run, it's going to make for a much better work culture that people are going to want to stay in. Right. And you don't have to keep hiring and training new batches of people if the people you have, if you're taking care of them, right? Money is a huge issue Mm -hmm. in emergency response, as you know, as all of our listeners know. And But if directors and managers could just look at the cost of, you know, putting in a gym, offering like childcare stipends, maybe versus the cost of hiring a whole new person and then having to wait for, you know, a really long time for them to get up to speed and be able to take calls on their own. Mm -hmm. Building a gym is a lot less expensive in the long run. Yeah. And that's how I ended up gravitating towards grant writing, because I realized there's money out there to do this. Mm -hmm. It's just that usually the kind of grants that departments will go after are are for equipment, but they don't stop to think, you know what, I should look for some grants for wellness. And whether that has to do with on-site or therapy and peer support off-site or family education or, you know, maybe team building so that people cooperate better. That money is there. It's just, it takes a long time to find it. It takes a lot of research, but there are ways to get that money. So I just felt like I really wanted to be a part of doing that. Having been in the trenches, that seemed like a calling to me. And that's a really great calling, right? You have the one part of it, which is the research. So having solid data that you can point to, to say, look, these are the problems, these are the stressors. And then the grant writing to be able to help people write out what they need and why they need it. And that's, that's perfect. A perfect union. 
And even not just departments, but sometimes there are nonprofits out there that a lot of times they're started by family members or loved ones who just really want to help somehow, you know, like firefighter wives, this, you know, Mm -hmm. police families, this. And the problem is they start their nonprofit and they're like, well, we want to give them some money, but we don't know what for and we don't know how to get it. And so I help them too. That's amazing for you to connect the the two ends of that spectrum, because, yeah, there's people out there looking to give money and then there's dispatch centers out there looking to receive money. Is there anything else you want to talk to about grant writing? Because that's something that I am interested in telling the listeners about at some point. Yeah. Now, the thing you have to keep in mind is if you are interested in trying to pursue grants for your department, the money won't come to you for at least six months, maybe a year. So you kind of have to get on it sooner rather than later. Mm-hmm. And it's a lot of work. I'll be honest, because you really have to look at each and everything they want from you to see if you're a good fit. So I would say maybe assess your team. Or is there anybody on there that would have skills like that? Or is there a job position like that? If not, then you may want to reach out and see who can help you write grants for what. So even if it's like proofreading, like you think you can write it, but you might need a proofreader or you know what, I don't write, I'm not doing this, then it's worth it for you to invest a little bit in having somebody else take care of it for you so you can start that money coming in at some point. And start getting your ideas together. Start asking your people, like, what do you guys need the most? Because that's the first step in changing the culture is having more open conversations. Right. Again, you don't want to be coming in and saying, hey, I have the solution. And for all of your dispatchers to say that wasn't a problem. But thank you. But no, thank you. (laughs) You know, absolutely. Are there any resources on your website, Violet, for people who are interested in learning more about grant writing? I have a blog in which I feature different types of wellness on-site or off-site just to get people's ideas stirring. And, you know, if anybody has a question, there's a way for them to contact me. And I have a breakdown of my services as well, in case you're curious. A lot of times I tell people it's best to go to somebody who knows first responders when you're looking at grant writing, because if you just go to a regular grant writer who has no idea what you do, it's 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 not the same thing when you submit the grant you're not really telling the story right so that's something that's important to consider right you have to be speaking the same language because there is that learning curve of getting into emergency dispatch first response and learning all the lingo and what actually goes on it makes total sense to go to someone who already has that background mm-hmm. and if it's a new nonprofit, it, it's a lot to get a nonprofit off the ground and i admire people who start them for first responders just give me a call or write me an email. For sure. And that is 911grantwriting.com. Yep, that's me. Perfect. And we will have that link in the show notes too, in case you didn't catch that or you're driving or whatever. Violet, is there anything that you would like the listeners to take away from this episode? Just to start thinking towards what, what can we do? Because there is a way to do it. What would we like to see where we are working change? And what are some good ways for us to create that communication so that we can start going after this money to change it? We want to have a vote. Yeah. And again, that goes back to the agency culture of communication and 
connection. And even if you need, say, articles to show somebody, I have on my LinkedIn page um, under my publications, different articles that I've published in APCO and some other places that you could just say, if you just look at this, or, you know, if you just want to show them something on my blog as an idea, like, look, we could do this, that might be helpful for you. Right. Yeah. Because sometimes it it's hard to know where to start. And it sounds like those resources will be mm-hmm. a really, really great way to do that. All right. Well, Violet, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. And if you are listening and you have questions or there's a topic that you want us to cover, go ahead and email us at dispatchindepth at emergencydispatch.org. And Violet, we will talk to you later. Nice talking to you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Dispatch In Depth. Remember, it really helps if you rate and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. Dispatch In Depth is hosted by me, Becca Barris. I'm also the technical director and producer, and Matthew Maiko is the executive producer. 